Thanks, Chris. Uh, on the way in today, you also should have received uh, what we call our Growing Deeper. Uh, it's a booklet, a Bible study booklet uh, that we write with every series. This is part two of the I Wonder series. should have gotten it on the way in. If not, make sure you grab one on the way out. We also can send this to you in a daily format by email, but this kind of helps you dig in deeper to what the Bible says about the questions that we're tackling throughout this series. Um, so, you know, as we've talked about, we're, we're asking this question today, isn't sin an outdated idea? And you'll notice that we're asking this question in the negative. We're, we're saying, isn't, isn't it true that sin is an outdated idea? And the reason we're asking it in the negative is because I think that's where a lot of us are on this issue, frankly. That we struggle to, uh, to believe that sin is still a relevant concept that, uh, that we should listen to today, at least, at least the entirety of, of uh, what we kind of know as sin. And for most of us, I think the reason that we do that is because we tend to view sin in one specific way. We tend to view sin as a gigantic, arbitrary, right and wrong list. You know what I mean? As if God a few thousand years ago sat down and, and just arbitrarily, randomly thought of a bunch of stuff that he didn't like and he put it on a list and he says, this stuff's bad, don't do it, and this is the good stuff and you should do it. And most of us think that if you could actually question God on, on these things that are on the sin list, I think most of us probably believe that if you could ask God about things and you say, so, so, so why is this wrong? He would say, ah, because I said so. Or because it's bad or dirty or icky or yucky or I just don't like it. See, I think most of us, when we think of this concept of sin, just, just imagine rights and wrongs. That's where we start. We imagine, okay, sin are things that are wrong. They are fundamentally wrong. And we imagine that God just arbitrarily thought of them. But I want to ask you today, if that's your conception of sin, why on earth would God have made a list like that in the first place? What would God have to gain for making such a list? Was it just so that he could have a power trip and flex his muscle and exercise his authority over us? Or was it just so that he could send us on a guilt trip so that we'd have plenty to feel bad about and he could, he could leverage that over us whenever he wanted? And you know, if this is the way that we view sin as just some list of rights and wrongs that God arbitrarily decides, you know what else it does? It leaves a lot of room for us to Monday morning quarterback God, his judgments and his opinions. Because if it's just opinion, I mean, it may be God's opinion, but if it's just opinion, then we should be able to decide differently. And I, I think that's what's happened to us as a society. Sin has become something that we want to decide for all of ourselves. And why not? If it's just some list of rights or wrongs that is arbitrary, why shouldn't we be able to do the same thing? And so in your universe, you've got your own idea of, of what the worst kind of sinner might be. And in my universe, I've got a different idea about the worst kind of sinner and who they are and what they might be or what they might do. In your universe, maybe, maybe they're the people who run puppy mills. And in my universe, I'll tell you, they are the people who, who, you know, they're in a public restroom. You see them, and they walk out of the stall or away from the, you know, thing, and they, they walk out, and they don't wash their hands. What is wrong with these people, right? Were you raised by wolves, those of you who do this? Because I'll tell you, even wolves lick themselves clean every once in a while. Wash your hands, people, all right? <laughs> Can I get an amen, right? That'll be the first amen I've ever gotten in this church. I'll just, it's kind of funny how that works. But, uh, uh, right? I mean, it's all arbitrary then, and, and we're all free to decide. And that's really what we've come to as a society where sin is in the eye of the beholder. And so each of us gets to decide for ourselves what behavior is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is 
unacceptable. But what if, what if that's not really accurate? What if that's not what sin is? What if sin's not arbitrary? What if sin at its very foundation isn't even a right or wrong list? What if sin is God warning us about things that will be detrimental to us, things that might hurt us or hurt other people around us. See, see, what if the things that God calls sin are the very things that God knows will keep us from his very best for our lives and, and for the lives of the people who live life around us? What if we're all wrong on our fundamental understanding of what sin is? See, if that's the case, if sin is all about God protecting us from things that might hurt us or protecting others from things that we do that might hurt them, then I think you'd have to agree with me that, that this, this can't be an outdated concept. Because who wants to go out and intentionally hurt people? Who wants to go out and intentionally hurt uh, yourself? So, so maybe God isn't a Puritan, you know, maybe God isn't a prude. Maybe God is the ultimate life giver. And maybe God is a God who wants to shield us from the things that would steal the blessing of freedom and joy and life that he so desperately wants not only us, but every human who has ever lived to have. This morning, could you just believe that's true just, just, for, just, for, the, just for this morning? Could, could you reorient in your mind what this whole idea of sin is about? What, what God's intention is for calling some things sinful and some things good? C could you just believe that maybe God is out for protecting us and blessing us and teaching us about a way of, of full, whole, abundant life? So, so play along with me just for a minute. Um, let, let's assume that maybe you concede that point to me and you say, okay, I'll listen to you. Maybe, maybe this is what sin actually is. It's about God protecting I'll tell you, even when you buy into that, inevitably you will, you will come to a day where um, you'll be reading through the Bible, or you'll hear someone like me talking about the Bible, and, and you, you will come into contact with, with something that, that, uh, that God calls sin, and you'll say, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that can't be right. And usually it's not the things that other people struggle with. Right? It's, it's not the things that, that you, you have no personal connection with that other people do that you don't understand. You're okay with that stuff being called dangerous or hurtful. It's usually the stuff that you yourself struggle with or someone that you love very much struggles with. And, and in that moment, you'll be like, wait, 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 wait. It can't possibly be true that this would hurt me or this would hurt someone else. In fact, this is something that makes me feel good. It makes me feel alive. It makes me feel whole. How could it possibly be harmful for me? And in those moments, and we are all destined to have them, in those moments, the difference of opinion that we have with God on what is, what is harmful and what is not, ultimately happens because of one reason, and that is that we don't have the foresight that God has. We can't see how things, decisions, behaviors will play out down the road. Kids struggle with this all the time, right? Uh, even if you're a kid in the room, maybe you've got a younger brother or sister or a little cousin or a niece or nephew or something, you know. Maybe you've got a littler kid than you, and, and you know how kids struggle with this. They struggle with foresight. They have none, and so you try to tell them not to eat too much junk food because they won't feel good, and they don't believe you, ever. 
even if they ate too much junk food the day before and they're still feeling sick from it, you know, they're, they're hounding you about it and they think you're so mean for not giving it to them. Or it's the same thing about staying up late. Or in my house, it's brushing your teeth every night. My kids fight me. You know, every day of their lives, they've had to brush their teeth at night, and yet they fight me every night. They look at me like I'm Joseph Stalin when I say it's time to brush your teeth. They're like, you dictator, right? And then I go, you want to rot your teeth out? And, and they just don't have the foresight. I, you know, I, I don't want them to look British when they grow up. And <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh, so, so I tell them that they just don't have the foresight. And, you know, teenagers do the same thing. Uh, teenagers, you know, you warn them about drugs and, and you say, man, this can really mess up your life and you can point to examples and they're like, yeah. Or you can tell them to take school more seriously because you say, if you don't get an education, studies show, if you don't get a secondary or, or a, a, a college education, studies show you'll make less money, you'll, you'll be more likely uh, below the poverty level, a whole bunch of list of things and, and they can go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can say, hey, don't take this relationship too seriously with this boy or girl in your life because you're too young to get so serious so quickly, and, and, and you can even open up your life to a teenager. You can get authentic. You can share from your experience about how you made similar decisions and they caused pain or hurt for you or for other people, and, and they will struggle to believe you because they also lack foresight. And now if you're a kid or a teenager in the room, I don't want you to feel called out because guess what? Even those of us who pretend to be grown-ups or call ourselves grown-ups, we do the same thing, Right? And if you don't think you're doing it, you're kidding yourself. There's someone who's watching your life right now, and maybe they're more experienced than you about something in life, and they're shaking their head at your lack of foresight, because we all do this. We lack foresight. See, when we're in this place where we disagree with, with God on what might be harmful or hurtful to us or to others, maybe we could just entertain the possibility that although it doesn't seem like it's hurting us or anyone else yet, Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's a matter of yet. Maybe we just can't see far enough down the road to see how we will eventually end up in hurt or pain or hurting someone else. Uh, it's a lack of foresight. Here's a quick demonstration of what I want to talk about. If you grab a Bible right now or go to your smartphone and go to Genesis chapter 3, um, I've got a Bible right here that I'm going to crack open. Uh, it's page 3 in these uh, Bibles here. Uh, on your smartphone, you can go to uversion.com, type in STJSTL. Uh, I'm sorry, type in uversion.com, uh, go to live, type in STJSTL, and then you'll find uh, our whole menu with the scripture right there for you. So Genesis 3, starting at verse 1, it's at the very, very beginning of your Bible. Pretty easy to find. It's actually kind of hard to find because you can't flip very far and you're already past it. So Genesis 3. Some of you think I'm playing word games today, and I just want to show you uh, from, from the moment that sin entered the world that what I'm saying is true about what, what qualifies as sin, why God calls things sin, and uh, why he doesn't. So Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent, uh, this is a manifestation of the evil one, the enemy of God. We call him the devil or Satan or the evil one. So now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the woman is, do you know? Yeah, we know her by the name of Eve. He said to the woman, Eve, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Here's some context. Um, Adam and Eve have been created to live in this lush, beautiful garden. There's, there's all kinds of different fruit trees. There's, there's stuff that's just abundant for them. They can have all of it, except God says, hey, there's one tree that I don't want you to eat from, okay? That's what's happened before this. So the serpent says, hey, did God really say 
you must not eat from any tree in the garden, which is not true. God didn't say that, uh, and, and so Eve will follow that up. Verse 2, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree that's, I'm sorry, from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Uh, so God had, had um, explained why this boundary was there, but watch what happens next. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. It's not true, he says. There are no consequences to this action. In fact, verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she sniffs it out, she checks it out, she looks, she goes, this looks like good stuff. I'm, I don't see what the harm would be. It says, uh, and not only that, but also she realizes that it's desirable for gaining wisdom because that's what the serpent told her it would do, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then, then get this, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So, so God used to come down every night, and they would have these nighttime walks together. And they would just talk, and they would share relationship, and it was a regular part of their connection ritual. I mean, God, God would engage Adam and Eve in a very interpersonal kind of way, because that's what he created them for. He created them for relationship. But now he comes down for their regularly scheduled walk, and uh, he comes down, and, uh, and it says, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? So the guy blames the woman, the God turns to the woman, and he says, God says to the woman, uh, what, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. They're, they're shifting blame all around. And then in the next few verses, uh, God goes into this, this, uh, this list of natural consequences that are going to happen as a result of their action that we know as the curse. But, but here's some things I want to show you about this, this inaugural event of sin. The first sin that ever came into the world. Um, five summary points that apply to this narrative and to every sin that has ever occurred since and should apply to our understanding of what truly what sin is. It's not about right or wrong. It's about something deeper. I want you to take notes on these. So either on the back of your handout, there's space for you to do that, or you can type it into your uh, smartphone and, and save them for later. You need these notes. Trust me. First is this. First thing we learn, God's boundaries are for protection. God's boundaries are for protection. Uh, God set this tree apart, and he said, don't eat of this tree because what's going to happen what did he say? You'll die. <laughs> it's pretty simple. He says, don't eat from the tree, you'll die. There, there's something bad that will happen to you if, if you, if you uh, transgress this boundary. See, see, God's motive in all of this wasn't to be a meanie. His motive in all this was to say, there's something dangerous here, and I want to protect you from it. God's boundaries are always 
for protection. It's not about right or wrong. It's about protection. God has made us. He's made the world. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. We often lack the foresight to see how our decisions will hurt us. So God is good enough to tell us in advance, hey, be careful. My boundaries, the things that I call sin, are for your protection. Here's the second thing we see. That temptation starts when you stop believing your actions will cause pain. Temptation starts when you stop believing that your actions will cause pain. If Adam and Eve had just continued to believe that this tree would kill them, they never would have eaten it of it, I'm sure. Uh, but the true temptation started for them when, when they heard the, the, the serpent say, you know what, you're not going to die. And they thought, yeah, this doesn't make sense. I don't think I'm going to die. There, there are going to be no consequences here. There's no pain. I, I don't believe that. See, when that happens in your life, that's when temptation begins to take hold. When you start believing that really there are no consequences, it's not going to hurt me, it's not going to hurt anyone else. Even if it's hurt other people, maybe I'll be the one who gets away with it. Temptation starts when you stop believing that your actions will cause pain. Third, at the root of temptation is always doubt concerning God's character. At at the root of temptation is always doubt concerning God's character. Write this down because this is going to happen to you. It happened to Eve, right? Uh, God God said, this tree is going to kill you. Don't eat of it. And the serpent says, that's not true. In fact, what he says is, he says, he says, God is holding out on you. He says, God just knows that if you eat of this tree, you're going to become like him. In fact, God is, God is worried about you encroaching on his power. He's trying to hold you down. He's trying to oppress you. He's trying to keep you from something really good in your life. Don't believe him, the serpent says. And Eve begins to look and she sees and she says, this, this, this looks good. Maybe God is trying to hold back on me. See, I'm telling you, if you've ever been caught up in temptation, this is true. You will find yourself in a battle, and if you're not careful, if, if you start disbelieving God's character, if you start doubting his character as a good and loving God who wants to bless you and give you life to the full, the moment you stop believing that and you believe that God is just trying to hold out on you, that he's trying to keep you from having fun, that there are all these enjoyable things in the world that would be really great, but God just doesn't want you to have them for some reason, no good reason, then uh, then temptation has really taken hold. Four, after sinning, it's hard to face God. I I was raised um, in the church to believe that God can't be around sin. I was told that numbers of times by many pastors and uh, and I understand why they say that, but I do not believe that's true. And I do not believe that's true because of what happened with the first sin in Genesis 3 that we just looked at. See, Adam and Eve have sinned, and God comes walking. God knows what they did. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows fully. And so he comes walking to have a conversation with them about this. And God approaches them. And who's hiding? Who's running away? Adam and Eve, see, it's not that God is staying away saying, oh, now you're sinners, I can't be around you. And, and I grew up thinking that, and so I thought, well, gosh, if I'm a sinner, God doesn't want to be around me. And, and, and that creates problems. Because God's son, Jesus, became sin. How, how could God get that so close to sin? See, 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 it's not so much on God. It's not like God can't be around sinners. The, the truth is, we as sinners, when we fall into sin, when, when, we, when we're living in sin, we have a very hard time facing God. 
And like Adam and Eve, we will find ourselves running away and hiding. See, that's where separation comes. Maybe you've heard it said before that sin is separation from God, but it really is more on us than on God. We have the problem here. God comes looking, walking, talking, trying to have a conversation with us to restore us, and we're like, I don't want to face you. We hide. This is why the Bible says that some sins lead to death. Because if you remove yourself, if you hide away from, if you break off your relationship with God because of all the things going on in your life, you've removed yourself from the one who brings life, and so there's nothing for you but death. So, so after sinning, it's hard to face God. That's on us, not God. Last one. Even in the face of sin, God is still gracious. Even in the face of sin, God is still gracious. Instead of, instead of judging them harshly, God actually begins, even as he's giving the curse, he begins to shield them from the consequences. They don't die right away. Uh, as God is, is talking about the way the earth will change and the way their lives will change as a result of their sin in Genesis 3, he actually implants in the middle of it a promise that one day, He will send a a rescuer, as we sang about today, a deliverer, someone who's going to come who will be born of a woman who will finally put an end to sin and death. Right as God is is, is revealing the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, he begins talking about a Savior named Jesus who would come into the world. See, friends, here's where I want to leave us before we get into the texting. Um, Even when we sin, God is gracious. And our human tendency is to want to run away and hide, but God, God invites us to come. Uh, that's why he, he paid for our sins on the cross, so that we would know without a doubt. I mean, you look at the cross, you look at what Jesus went through, you can know without a doubt that you are forgiven, that Jesus took the full brunt of any punishment that we deserve. He took it upon himself in a very graphic way so that we can know without a doubt that, that we, are, we are forgiven We are free, and God still wants to love us and be in a relationship with us. All right, that's all I'm going to say. Maybe talked a little longer than I wanted, but uh, here's the number, 636-686-0140. You can text in your questions, and we'll see if I have a a question up here. Uh, Why did God even give Adam and Eve the chance uh, of the tree to mess things up in the first place? What a great question, and I'm glad this is first. I almost answered this when I was talking about Genesis, and I thought, someone's going to answer or ask that question, so I'm glad you did. Um, the, the reason I think, first of all, I'll say I don't know. Um, really, I don't know. But the reason I think, the best I can speculate as to why God did this, is I want you to imagine for a second, um, think right now of, of the person that you love most in all the world. Um, just think of that person. It could be a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend, whatever. Um, think of someone you love most in all the world. Now imagine tomorrow you found out that that person was kind of like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator, and they were from like the 25th century, and they had been programmed by robots to love you, and they, f- in fact, didn't really love you. They were programmed to do so, and so they had to love you. Would, would anyone find that devastating? <laughs> right? If you wake up and you look at your spouse, the person you love most, and you go man, you don't really love me. You're just a computer program who acts like you love me. Would anyone else be devastated by that? I I would. Uh, I'd find that absolutely devastating. Why? Because there's something about us that says, you know, for for love and relationship to happen, there needs to be some sort of, of choosing to love. See, I think that's the reason God put a tree in the middle of the garden that was off limits. 
because God didn't want people for robots. God didn't want people who had no option but to love him and to be in a relationship with him. God didn't want people who had to do what he said no matter what. God, God wanted to give people a chance. And he kind of tipped the odds in their favor. I mean, he put thousands of trees that were okay and one that was bad. But he wanted to give people a chance to choose a relationship with him, to have a way out if they wanted to. And I think that's the reason God did it, is because he doesn't want robots, he wants relationship. An authentic relationship requires a choice not to be in relationship. That's my, uh, that's my answer. Uh, I own a gun. Great, I hope you don't have it with you here today. Especially after the next part of this. If I kill someone, uh, okay, while protecting my family, will I be judged as a sinner? Great, great question. This gets to the, uh, the commandment. Uh, you know, we kind of use the Ten Commandments as our, as our foundation of moral law of what is, what is uh, ultimately, and if you look at the commandments, a lot of it goes back to what's hurtful to us or to others. And so there's a commandment that says, some of us know it as thou shall not kill, but it's really thou shall not murder. Don't, don't commit murder. Murder speaks of intent. Even in our criminal, criminal justice system, right? If you kill someone accidentally, what, what's, what's the charge? Do you know? Uh, manslaughter. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you killed someone and you could be brought into account if you were careless like Batman Chris crashing through a car dealership or trying to this morning. Got to drill down on that one still, uh, find out what he was doing. Um, but but if, you, if you do something with intent, with malice, in a premeditated way, the law treats you differently. Um, and the same is true of Scripture. That's kind of a scriptural concept, that when you do something intentionally out of malice, premeditated, um, it's a different kind of thing. And so the commandment that we know is thou shalt not kill is really about murder. You shouldn't unjustly take the life of someone else. Uh, now, uh, to this question about protecting someone um, from someone who could threaten their life, um, everything I know about the Bible says that's biblically defensible to, uh, to protect yourself, to defend yourself, or especially your family. Now, I'm not speaking about the wisdom of owning guns or gun control, because that's a big debate these days, and I'm not talking about that. Uh, but, but in this, this case, if you're not killing someone in a premeditated, malicious way, but it's for the sake of self-defense... That's not the same as the commandment about murder. Uh, just to head off a couple other questions here. Um, the same is true of governments who have been given the right by God to execute the death penalty. Um, that is a right given to government by God. The Bible talks about it as such. Because that's, that's a matter of justice that the governments are allowed to have in order to, uh, to make sure that the, there's law and order. And, uh, you know, the death penalty may not be always exercised in the most appropriate way. We can argue about that. But, but the actual right... Is, uh, is okay biblically. Same thing with war, just war, war that's used to defend life, even though there is killing that happens, is not the same as murder. Okay, next question. Does the Bible address cohabitation before marriage? Is this a sin? Why, yes, it does. Uh, and, you know, the Bible does talk about um, marriage, and it says the marriage bed should be kept pure. It has a lot to say, actually, about sexual immorality, and a cohabitation would be one of those things. And the Bible says, yeah, this is, this is a sin. Now, now remember, what is a sin? It's not some arbitrary thing of right or wrong. If, if you see it as that, you're going to go, well, that's so old-fashioned. That's so outdated. I get why that made sense 3,000, 2,000 years ago. It just doesn't make sense today. But if sin is God trying to protect you from something or protect others from something, I think it makes sense why cohabitation can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, to live life in a relationship... Um, outside of, of, of a marriage commitment um, is, is putting a lot of emotion, a lot of investment into another person who's never committed to being around. And uh, without that kind of umbrella of commitment, it can be very hard to have a, a true, meaningful, deep 
relationship the way that God intends. So don't get so caught up in this, oh, that's, that's right or wrong, that's moral or immoral. Ask the deeper question, the question that God wants you to ask, of how could this action be less than God's best for my life? I'll also head off, you know, just uh, some other concerns here. Um, so if you're someone in the room who's uh, cohabiting, and maybe right now you're, you're next getting hot, and you're, you're going, gosh. Uh, you know, the Bible also says that divorce is a sin. If it, you're divorced for... Um, any reason other than a very narrow set of reasons. The Bible says that greed is a sin. Uh, The Bible says that malicious talk, saying really hateful things, is a sin. Are you getting the picture here? Uh, Again, it's not about right or wrong um, as much as it is about those things hurt you. Greed hurts you. If you're greedy, you are hurting yourself, and you're hurting other people that you should be sharing that with. That's really the fundamental issue. Next. Question. There we go. Uh, isn't the Bible pretty black and white regarding homosexuality and abortion? Um, yes. I mean, uh, you've got you've to have a caveat here. Um, when it talks about abortion, um, there, there is no concept really of abortion in the Bible, right? Um, but there is this biblical view that life is sacred and it should be protected. Uh, in the ancient world, Children, even born children, had no standing in society. And so if your kid got too expensive, you could dump them on the side of the road, and there was no moral obligation for you. You know, you wouldn't be arrested for that. It was fine for you to do that. Uh, When the Christian faith began to take hold, Christians, some of the first things they did is they invited widows who who were ostracized by society. They invited them in, and they cared for them, and they invited orphan children. It's part of the way that the Christian, the Christian movement grew so fast because they claimed all these people that no one else wanted, and uh, it was pretty incredible. And so, yeah, yeah, the Bible's view is that life is sacred. Every life is sacred from the moment of conception. Uh, the same thing is true with, with homosexuality. It wasn't quite the same issue that it is nowadays. Some of you will know that Jesus never overtly addresses the issue. The Bible does. The Bible talks about it. But, but once again, you know, this, this, even this black and white thing, it kind of bothers me a little bit. Because I think for a lot of us, we can look at those issues because they're not necessarily our issue. And we can go, that's wrong, that's bad, that's evil. Without understanding that under all of that, there's this question of, is this hurtful? Is this harmful? Are people being hurt? In the case of abortion, yeah, obviously, I believe that unborn children are being hurt. And I believe that the women who are having an abortion are unknowingly being hurt. And there's all kinds of evidence that says that they are. Uh, The same thing is true, uh, although I I admit it's a little harder for me to understand, but I think there's enough in the Bible about homosexuality that says, you know what, somehow this is just a little bit less than what God wants for people. In the same way that divorce and marriage is a little bit less, uh, remarriage is a little bit less than what God wants for people. That, That there's an opportunity for hurt or something less than God's best. Uh, so please be careful, you know, especially about the issue of homosexuality. Um, we as the church have been, we have been so wrong about the way we've dealt with this issue. Not wrong about what the Bible says about it, but wrong about how we've applied the truth of the Bible. Because we've made people who struggle with same-sex attraction feel like they are, they, are, they are different than the rest of us. And they're not. They're sinners like the rest of us. And we have condemned them to a life without hope, a, a life where they don't believe that God loves them. We've, we've thrown them out of churches. And that is wrong. Because in God's eyes, there is no difference when it comes to human sin. I mean, so even as we talk about this question, we say, yeah, 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 but, but I do it with a very, uh, with, with a heaviness because there's been so much abuse that's happened to people who struggle with this specific kind of sin or temptation 
that is just unprecedented. We don't do this with other sins, and it's really, really unfair. And yet, if we're going to be equal opportunity about it, let's talk about all the things that hurt us or hurt others. One more? Um, Are there seven deadly sins? What's the worst sin? How can all sins be equal? That's actually three more, but uh, I'm no accountant, but that's three. Um, So in the Middle Ages, uh, over time, um, I studied up on this before, uh, over time, some theologians compiled a list of sins they thought were especially deadly, that were especially harmful, that would, that would cause, you know, greater separation from God, and they made the seven deadly sins. That's not a biblical concept. Um, it's really just kind of a, a practical concept that theologians came up with, especially in the Middle Ages. Uh, so what's the worst sin? The Bible says that the worst sin is the only sin that's unforgivable. And it's, it's not abortion, it's not homosexuality, it's not divorce. The on, only unforgivable sin is rejection of a relationship with God, rejection of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, that's the only thing that can't, God can't overlook is that when you reject his son, the one who came to save you and to form a relationship with you, because Jesus came so that you could have reconciliation with God. If you reject the mediator, the one who came to bring you into reconciliation, well then you have no reconciliation. So, so the Bible says that unbelief, is the only unforgivable sin. And this is why we in the church need to be careful because sometimes the way we deal with people who are caught in sins that are different than our own is so harsh that we can drive them away, we can fill them with shame that's so big, so great, so deep that they remove themselves, they separate themselves from a relationship with God and, and may um, ultimately do so to their damnation. And, uh, and so that's why we have to be really careful speaking the truth always with grace. I said this two weeks ago. Never in the Bible will you see anyone saying, just let them have the truth. In the Bible, it's, it's equally important that you say things that are true, but it's always just as important that you do so in the right manner, in the right way. Um, so how can all sins be equal? Uh, because all sin hurts. All sin is, is against what God wants for his best. Um, now, now, to speak in human terms, there are some actions that hurt more people. And uh, from a human standpoint, you'd say, yeah, that's, 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 you know, that's kind of worse. It hurts more people. But on a soul level, um, you know, if I, if I have a bad habit of cussing people out in the car while I'm driving and, you know, they don't even hear it and I'm not hurting them, that, that's still not good for me. That's not the life that God wants me to have to be this, this hot-headed, angry person, right? There, there's still something where I am pushing against God's boundaries for the best life that he wants for me. And so, so, so that's a problem. Is that our last one? You don't want to give me one more back there in the control room? Last chance, three, two, oh, there we go, right under the wire. The Old Testament has lists of seemingly insignificant sins. Do those still stand? I am so glad that we got to this question. Um, so the Old Testament does have a, a whole bunch of moral law. There are 613 commandments that were given in the Old Testament to Jewish people. And then there were a bunch of other commandments that were kind of made off of those by, uh, by you know, scholars and, and uh, religious teachers to, to give people um, even more things to worry about in their lives. And, uh, and what we understand is that in the Bible there are, there are moral laws. There are these timeless, universal laws. So we say, we say killing someone is, is hurtful, obviously. And that's wrong for all of time. But what we have in the Old Testament is we've got God also speaking to a nation. 
Remember, Israel is actually a physical nation for a while. They're kind of the, the, the center, you know, figure in the Old Testament. They're a nation, and so God's also giving them laws as a nation, and he's giving them laws about how they should worship. He's giving them instructions, and those are all more um, kind of circumstantial for a time laws, laws that deal with how they should live together and, and you know, laws for the court system. And so, you know, it's kind of like they took all the U.S. laws and all the Supreme Court decisions and all that and the moral laws and they put it all together because they were this, this theocracy, this, this uh, God state. We're, we're not that anymore. Israel doesn't exist as a nation like that anymore. And so for us, we're still bound to obey those universal moral laws, you know, kind of summed up in the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus comes, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to read more about this, read Matthew 5 through 7, because Jesus goes back and he talks about the, the laws that still stand, and he even embellishes on them so that we can understand them more fully. Um, and so no, all of the Old Testament laws don't stand because they weren't intended to. See, it's not just that they're too old-fashioned or, you know, we've gotten wiser. or It really was that those were, those were only intended for the nation of Israel as it existed as a state for a set period of time. And you see even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the church leaders who grew up under all these laws having to figure out, do all these laws apply? And they go, no. In Acts 15, um, I'll close with this, in Acts chapter 15, they're trying to figure out because there are all these non-Jewish people who want to believe in Jesus, but they're not Jewish. And the Jewish people are saying, well, you've got to be Jewish and you've got to do all the things that Jewish, do, Jewish people do before you can believe in Jesus. And so they say, uh, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep all these laws. And, and the church leaders are going, wait, this seems crazy. And they actually come back with a decision and they say, no, no, no. Um, really, if you want to believe in Jesus, let's not make it hard on you to believe in Jesus. The only thing you should do is you should not eat um, certain kinds of food that have been sacrificed to idols. And you should abstain from sexual immorality. And, and you know, that's kind of it. You know, they, they take this whole Hebrew law and they say, that doesn't really matter anymore. Just kind of follow what Jesus says in addition to a couple other things. And so we see in the New Testament those old civil uh, laws being set aside. All right, we're done. Breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, here's what I want to do today as, as we close. Um,